Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are honored to be speaking to one of the great guitarists of our time, Des Dickerson. If you grew up in the 80s, you have definitely heard his sound. He's perhaps most identified as the original lead guitarist for the artist Prince. Guitar World magazine ranked his solo in the song Little Red Corvette as the 64th greatest guitar solo of all time. He has produced more than 80 albums, which have won numerous awards, including five Dove Awards and a Grammy nomination. He's been featured in numerous music publications, including Rolling Stone, Billboard, and Musician. He now calls Columbia, Tennessee his home and has started a church here called We Are Here. Des Dickerson is here in the studio to tell us the whole story. Hello, Des. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to History's Hook. Good to be here. Together, we are joined in the studio by my co-host, Lake Stallcup. Lake is a musician, producer, and former Curb Records recording artist, and I'm honored to call him a longtime friend. Lake Stallcup, welcome back to History's Hook. Great to be here, Tom. One of my favorite Prince quotes is, cool means being able to hang with yourself. All you have to ask yourself is, is there anybody that I'm afraid of? Is there anybody who, if I walked into a room and saw... I'd get nervous. If not, then you're cool. Des Dickerson, I'm the least cool person in Tennessee right now. <laughs> I'm so proud to have you here. I'm pretty sure there's probably a pocket of less cool people. But, I don't know about it. I know. don't know about it. So I was born in 1969, and for me, the music of the late 70s and all of the 80s really defines so much of who I am. Uh, you didn't have just a front row seat to the music of the period. You were on stage making it. Give me a word or two that when you think back on that time in your musical career, best describes your experience. You know, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And that's the best way I can describe it because there were amazing moments. There were, you know, we were too young to have a bucket list, but there were sort of like these pinch me moments. There's, I got to use this, this analogy. There's a film called That Thing You Do, a Tom Hanks film. Love it. And uh, one of my favorite movies. And there's this scene where they... They're getting ready to film, you know, what obviously is supposed to be the Ed Sullivan show, but they couldn't call it that. And the bass player, the guitar player turns to the drummer and says, how did we get here? Right. It felt like that all the time. Just felt like it all the time. <laughs> it's unbelievable. You were born and raised in the Minneapolis area mm -hmm. of Minnesota. Um, Talk to us about your growing up years. What was it like in Minneapolis? If I can tell your age, you were born in yeah, yeah. 1955. I, 1955. What, what was it like I, I can't up there? believe I've been here this long. That's amazing. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to make it past 30. I'm glad I did. Um, you know, Minnesota was a great place uh, growing up. For, for the times, it was sort of uh, kind of like a pocket universe for the Doctor Who fans out there. It, it, was, it, was, it was this pocket of... of freedom and clarity and um, that there, there were some of the things attendant with the times that were you know realities that I lived the first nine years of my life in, in pre-civil rights America so 
I I drank from colored fountains and that whole thing, but hmm. but Minnesota was just not. It wasn't virulent, and my folks were from Clarksville, um, Tennessee. And so I spent time as a kid, you know, we'd come down in the summer and, and visit family and whatever. And, and it was, you know, it was different than it was in Minnesota. But uh, very small sort of minority population, like 2% at the time. But a lot of Scandinavians and, and, uh, and Germans. So they just were cool. Yeah. <laughs> it was, what did it your was, parents do for a living? My, my father um, was what we now call a graphic artist. And he worked for... Um, the state of Minnesota, um, primarily when I was a kid. In fact, if you've ever seen, like, you know, the, the Golden Gopher, like Goldie the Gopher, yes. you know, the, the, my dad actually created that really? when he worked for the state. Oh, wow. yeah, it's, it's a weird thing that he actually <laughs> created that. Um, and my mom, you know, she she was in kind of the the bookkeeping and administrative side of things, but then quit working to stay home with me when, when I was, uh, you know, a, a couple of years old. So, you know, it was a great environment, great parents, and, uh, you know, I, I have fond memories. At what point does music enter your life? Very early. My, my dad had been a musician. He started playing in, in dance bands and, and, like, traveling at age 11 when he uh, obviously was growing up in Clarksville. And um, he had quit to get married and raise a family. He actually went into the Navy and played sax in the ship's band in the Navy. But, you know, one of my earliest memories is, you know, he was working when I was really young. He was working like two jobs and he worked this night, this sort of actually graveyard shift job at the post office. And my early one of my earliest memories is waking up at like two in the morning and hearing music coming from downstairs. And so I kind of creep out and get on the staircase, you know, trying not to be seen. And there's four guys in my living room playing saxophones. And, you know, he had found other guys at the post office that all played. And so that was his outlet. You know, they would yeah. they would jam after they got off work in the middle of the night. But he was an avid, you know, huge record collection jazz and R&B fan, but he also listened to other things. You remember the Procol Harem song, Whiter Shade of Pale? Mm. My dad wore that record out for whatever. He would find things sometimes that just kind of hit him and he would get stuck on them. But that um, was where the music thing came from. And instrumentally, what did you play? What did you pick up early well, on? At first, you know, it was kind of like, well, you know, I want to make dad proud. So I, I started out playing saxophone, just hated it. I mean, hated it with a passion. <laughs> And, you know, they had known that what I was drawn to was guitar. And, um, you know, I gave it a shot on the sax thing and they were cool with me switching because I just didn't want to play another note. I just hated it. And, you know, from that point, it was a complete flip of the switch. They then within a couple of years, they were concerned that there was something wrong because I wouldn't come out of my room. All I did it was practice. So... <laughs> That, that actually can be good and it can be bad. But uh, the guitar thing, in earnest, kind of started when I was 14. 14. Yeah. Any formal training at all or uh, just picking it up and playing? I took lessons for all of three weeks. At the end of the third lesson, the, the teacher kind of took my mom aside and said, you know, I've kind of taught him everything I can teach him. You just need really? to just let him go. I mean, the, the teacher at that point felt that uh, he, he's gotten over my head so fast that you just need to let him go. So that's what they did. They just kind of, they, they got the rest of the family together 
and bought me a new guitar. That was one of the things that, that the teacher had advised. Because I had a really crummy, it was like a, a Xenon guitar. It was back when they made instruments in Japan and they weren't good, as opposed to now they, were, they make <laughs> instruments in Japan that are good. Bought it at Radio Shack. That should tell you something. <laughs> so my family chipped in and got me this Gibson, and, and that was it. I mean, it was just off and running. It were was, you writing songs as well? or I started writing at about 15 okay. and, and started pretty much started playing in bands immediately, formed a band, and uh, you know we rehearsed in the basement. And the fir- actually played the first gig within, I mean, weeks. We played what was called the Ninth Grade Party. And had to pay to get in, an ignominious <laughs> beginning. Um, and then from then on, I mean, like at age 15, there was a band from Minneapolis called uh, Gypsy that was on RCA. And it was one of the only two bands in town that like had, you know, what we called national deals. But the drummer um, left and joined Robin Trower when that thing happened. And he happened to be dating a girl from my school and came to one of our little show we were playing in the basement of a Catholic church, and there were like six people there. But he was one of them. And he was so freaked out, he went back and told this agent in town that he knew, said, there's this kid that plays just like Hendrix, and you got to sign him. So ended up with an agent at age 15. He didn't have anybody in the band that could drive. We had to hire, okay, our first roadie has to be able to drive. That was the the criterion. Um, And then from then on, it was like getting, you know, our parents to write notes Friday so we could get out of school early so we could go play East Crevice, Iowa, or whatever it was. And uh, kind of through the rest of school, that's what it was. Describe the music scene in Minneapolis in this time frame. There's a bigger thing going on here. Yeah. And well, here's the cool thing. It was a market that musicians from other places, you know, somehow found that you could you could make a living playing music. It was playing, you know, cover music for the most part. But if you built a big enough, you know, what we call now a brand, then you had the wherewithal to start playing your own music. So there were a few bands in town that pretty much played all original music. But um, the other thing about it that was cool, even then, and we're talking, you know, 60s right now. Um, there were all sorts of bands that were like, you know, multiracial, multicultural, whatever, whatever words we would use now. So you'd have, you know, rock bands fronted by black lead singers. You'd have, you'd have like the, one of the biggest bands was a band called Danny's Reasons. And it was like, (laughs) it was all brothers and a, and Danny, the white dude was a front man. And that was just, it was like the town itself. It was just kind of colorblind to a great degree. Which and it was a great sort of an amalgamation scene. of music genres, I suppose, and and talent uh, yeah. to to the game. It's, it's changing changing things up a little bit. He, you know, was as influenced by Sly or as influenced by you know Grand Funk Railroad as he was Sly. Now he wouldn't talk about that a lot in interviews, but that that was what kind of brought us together because we had, you know, Grand Funk was my like number one obsession, and uh, obviously if you've listened to Prince play, you know that Carlos Santana is like way up in his list of influences. But he loved all sorts of music, and you know Sly is kind of the, you know, that set the table for his sound and that whole thing. I mean, literally, but um, it was it was that love of all kinds of, of music. And the fact that as he as the band came together, everybody in the band had different influences. And he kind of, you know, opened up and took all that in. 
Um, who are your chief influences as you're playing from starting from the time you're a 15 year old kid? Who, who are you listening to in, intently to sort of pick up the sound? Early on, I mean, I was into power trios. So I mentioned Grand Funk Railroad. There, there was a band called, a band from San Francisco called Blue Cheer. Um, a, a, like a, they called them psychedelic, but they really weren't. They, they were just a, a really loud kind of fuzzy rock band. And they did a, a remake of Summertime Blues and they actually had a hit with it. Um, I was influenced by them. I was influenced by, you know, early Led Zeppelin, the first Zeppelin record. Later on, as time went on, I was more influenced by Hendrix. Not as much in the beginning, but it became more of a, okay, I'm not crazy. There's somebody else that kind of does what I do. You know what I mean? Because before that, it's like, well, why don't, why don't you play R&B? Well, because that's not what I play. I, I do this. Um, and there were a few other bands. I mean, they, there were a lot of great... Cream was probably like to a great degree, at the top of the list. And in, in fact, there was, there was a point where there was a song called Crossroads. And I told myself, if I can play the solo in this song, note for note, then I'll know that I can do this. I kind of, you know, pegged my whole sense of, yes, I, I can be, because I, I wanted to be the best in the world. It, it's a big world. You don't know that when you're 15. But learning that song was, for me, that was the benchmark. And the day that... I kind of put that to bed and yeah, I can play this beginning to end note for note. It was like, all right, then here we go. You're instilling confidence in your own self. You've created a benchmark, you yeah. hit the benchmark and that's allowing you to take the next step. Your connection with Prince came in a kind of an inconspicuous way in 1979, namely by answering an ad in the Twin Cities Reader for a band who was looking for a guitarist. Uh, describe the event and what prompted you to audition? You know, if you've ever, you know, been the guy that, that puts together like local bands and, you know, you run the auditions and, and you find the players and then you then you kind of run the band, you kind of do the business and you do the books and that guy, you know, there tends to be this series of there's this hopeful start and then, you know, the band gets traction and then there's a point where it's like, oh, I hate this guy in the band or this guy in the band is, and it always ends up, you know, rinse, repeat. So I was on about my 12th iteration of that and uh, happened to see this ad, Warner Brothers recording artist, seeks guitarist and keyboardist. And there was only one person within 600 miles of the Twin Cities that had a deal of any sort, much less Warner. So I knew who it was. Um, and it had, was like, you know, have you had any on... dealings with Prince prior to this? None. He, he, we actually lived on, on opposite sides of the river. I actually grew up in St. Paul. He was in Minneapolis. Now, I spent a lot of time in Minneapolis, but, you know, he he was three years behind me in school. Obviously, we we're in completely different schools. I had heard about him just like people heard about, you know, this kid that played like Hendrix, however many years before. He was that guy then. So I knew like, yeah, I, I if this train has an empty seat, I'm getting on it. That's that's where I was coming from. The event itself of, of uh, auditioning. So uh, so the audition like. itself, uh, it's at a place called Dell's Tire Mart, which is no longer there. I, I showed up along with several other people. They were auditioning a bunch of keyboard players that day. And it was cold, man. It was like, I think January. And, you know, January in Minnesota, it's, it's going to get down... 10, 20 degrees below zero and stay there for a few weeks. So we're sitting in our cars 
finally, one of us went around from window, window to window and said, hey, why don't we all get in one car? Broke musicians, let's not all use our gas. So they were late. I mean, Prince and the entourage were like two and a half hours late getting there. I would find out years later that that was a way of life. But, you know, <laughs> at the time, I thought there was some reason for it. So I was actually on my way out of town. I'd given the band some kind of, you know, fake story about why I had to travel separately. Because we were playing again in, like, you know, East Crevice, Wisconsin or whatever. So I went up to the manager and said, hey, can I go first? Because I really have to leave. I have a gig tonight. So they graciously let me go first. We jammed for 15 minutes. Um, you know, I, I played rhythm until Prince kind of looked and nodded at me. Then I soloed for, you know, a bit and then kind of went back to playing rhythm. And he took me outside. We talked. He asked me some really insightful questions for a guy that young. Um, he's and a couple then, years younger than you. He's like three years yeah. younger. And he basically said, look, if you will come help me do what I do. I mean, I know that you've been, you know, fronting and doing your, your own bands and doing this whole thing. But if you'll come help me do what I do, when the time comes, I'll help you do what you do and get back to that. So we, we struck a deal in the parking lot of, of Dell's Tire Mart. And that was it. Got in my car, sped off to uh, wherever it was and, and did the show. And uh, it began. I'm assuming there are a large number of people auditioning for this position. What do you think it was that Prince saw or heard in your audition that put you at the top of the list? It's funny because Prince and Andre Simone, who was our bass player, and they, they were like brothers from another mother. Um, Prince said it was because I was the only guy. They had auditioned like 100 guys between New York and L.A. I was the only guy who didn't just turn way up and just try to solo all the time. Andre said it was, you know, because, uh, you know, we talked about it and he said, no, it's because you had that vibe, <laughs> whatever that is. You had that vibe. So depending on which one you believe, Prince or Andre, that's what it was. It's an amazing story. We need to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Des Dickerson some more about his meteoric rise with Prince and the revolution. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, it's Terry from Tillis Jewelry, your festive gift destination this Christmas. Unwrap the magic with our natural diamond earrings starting at an incredible $99. Yes, you heard it right, $99. Picture the joy of discovering these stunning gems in your stocking. But there's more. Explore our brand new diamond pendants and dazzling stack rings at fantastic prices. Make this season unforgettable with Tillis Jewelry. Come see us on the Columbia Square, where the gift is wrapped with elegance. Tillis Jewelry, making your Christmas sparkle brighter. Happy Holidays. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. 
Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. Elevate your day at Old School Vapor. Check out our selection of disposables like Kato Bar, Viho, Raz, Lost Mary, Breeze, and more. Enjoy 35% off your entire e-liquid purchase and 20% off everything else. With every $20 Club 13 purchase, snag a chance to win a Rad Runner e-bike. And for Exodus lovers, every purchase gets you a ticket to win an Xbox Series S. Check us out at OldSchoolVapor.com. Debbie Matthews grew up and lives in beautiful Columbia, Tennessee. As a realtor, she is well-versed in homes, neighborhoods, development, and schools. She wants to share her love of her home state with others to help them find just the right place to raise a family, open a business, or develop a dream. From luxury listings to land, she can handle it all. She is the current leading producer, Nashville Realty Group. Contact Debbie Matthews Realtor at 615-476-3224. That's 615-476-3224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we have the honor of having Des Dickerson with us, one of the greatest guitarists of our time. Also in the studio, we have Lake Stolkup, our co-host. And today, we're talking about Des Dickerson's role with Prince and the Revolution and his career afterwards. Uh, Des, when we left for break, you were mentioning that you had uh, just auditioned for Prince. What did you know about Prince at this point? Where was he in his own career journey at the time that you joined him? You know, sort of the the local mythology, because the the way it worked back then, this is, you know, way before social media, any of those kinds of things. So there'd be kind of these localized urban legends. Like I said, years before, I, I had been one of those. And then there was this primarily through the the social ecosystem of the music stores. That's where the you know the the murmurs would begin and the, and the legends would grow. So I had heard about this kid from Minneapolis that that played a bunch of different instruments and wrote and sang, and was like you know people at that time framed him as like the new Stevie Wonder or whatever misconception they had. So I knew about him because even though it's a large metropolitan area. It's a, it's a small town. At that time, it was a small town. And, and the music community was even, you know, more sort of insular. 
So I just knew that he was a, a really talented kid, young, and he had completed his first album on Warner Brothers, and it was out. And he was, like I said, the, that was the only train that was leaving the station in town at that time. And again, again so everybody understands you're in your early 20s. I mean, yeah, at this point, I'm in my early just 20s. just a couple of kids at this point. Yeah, yeah. The whole band was young. I was actually the oldest guy in the band, which was hilarious. <laughs> I was like, you know, 22 or something, 23, and I'm the oldest guy in the band. So in October of 1979, Prince released the album Prince, which mm-hmm. was number four on the Billboard Top R&B Black Albums charts and number 22 on the Billboard 200 and it went platinum. It contained two R&B hits, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad and I Want to Be Your Lover, which sold over a million copies and reached number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one for two weeks on the Hot Soul Singles Chart. It's a pretty stellar beginning. Yeah, it was one of those, oh, maybe this thing's going to work moments. Yeah, what, what did that kind of success mean for you? Well, it meant a lot. I mean, I Want to Be Your Lover got us on American Bandstand, which at that time, you know, pre-MTV, pre-everything, was like, that. I mean, I grew up dreaming of being on that show. I, I grew up rehearsing, talking to Dick Clark, you know, in my room. So in, in, the, in the moment when you're actually, you're in the green room when he comes back before you go on, and you're talking to him, there's this, again, how did we get here? But there's also... Man, he's a lot shorter than I thought he was. He, he's not much taller than Prince. I tower over Prince. And then the other odd thought that came to me, man, this guy is one of the most tanned people I've ever seen. I mean, what does he do? That does was before just, tanning, too. It was. It was. It was before spray tans. It was before, like, tanning beds. Yeah. So I thought, does he, like, work on the beach every day? What does he do? But he's a very nice man and obviously very good at what he did. So doing that show was kind of that first moment of this is kicking into another gear. And it's going into the place where you dream of going, but you don't really know what it's going to be till you get there. And I got to say something else that was very funny. When we walked in and first saw the set, again, you watch that show your whole life back then if you were a musician or just a kid. And so we walked in and the set was like kind of all janky and, you know, like held together with duct tape and patched and different colors where they tried to spray paint over the patch and match the, remember it was this light blue kind of color. Yes. And the, uh, the AB logo was all beat up and it was like at the same, it was exhilarating and disappointing all at the same time, which was the hallmark of my career for the next five years. (laughs) That's the way it all went. It was exhilarating and disappointing all at the same time. Hey, you know, we talked about your uh, guitar influences earlier. Who influenced you as a performer? Because you you came off, you had a very cool vibe, man. Thank you. Uh, in fact, you can't find a Prince cover band that does not have you in it. That's so, true. Yes, it is. And, and they've managed to find a headband. Every yes. Well, how did that come about, the headband? Well, that was a funny story. We were in... Uh, Oakland, I think, doing sound check. And there's a band called The Pretenders. Um, the original bass player, I can't remember his name, but they had been on a show called Fridays. Remember, there was a yeah. show that for a while had Yeah, they had tried to run. compete with Saturday Night. Exactly. Yeah. And for a minute it worked. But So I'd just seen them on Fridays, and the bass player wore one of those headbands. 
And I was telling our lighting director and soundcheck how cool that headband was because I'd been experimenting with kind of going back to something I'd done in the cover band days for a while and wearing a headband. And he happened to have found one on that day off and bought it and he had it with him. And he said, hey, why don't you just wear this during soundcheck? So I wore it during soundcheck. I came off stage and I'm getting ready to hand it back to him, getting ready to untie it and hand it back to him. He said, no, no, only you can wear that from now on. So I really, okay. I got a credit. I got a credit, you know, Roy Bennett for being the guy who actually said the headband, stick with the headband. That was a good call. It, it, it was. <laughs> it was. It was branding. Who knew? Who yeah. knew at that time? But um, what was the, what was the, the perf- question? As a performer. As a performer, it was, uh, you know, Mark Farner from, from Grand Funk Railroad. It was Jimi Hendrix, I mean, who influenced me greatly as a performer. Um, you know, anybody who played guitar and fronted at the same time, because that's like a world of its own. It's different than, you know, being Robert Plant. I mean, there, there was Plant and there were Page, but if you could be both, sure, that was a whole other thing. Yeah. But I, I, was always, I was always moved by energetic... And, and authoritative performers, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Alice Cooper, there's a, there's a quote he said that, that audiences want to be taken. And it, it's like, yeah, that, it was that. It was like people that come out and it's just like you will, you know, follow. And I, that's, that's what drew me. Awesome. Hmm. It's sort of an aggressiveness behind, yeah. behind the playing. Yeah. And, and you're, you're going to bring the audience with you. You know, you might try to sit in your seat, but it's not going to work. Again, you're a kid, basically, mm-hmm. playing on American Bandstand. You're playing, starting to play big gigs, I assume, at this point in time. Yeah. Are you nervous? Not at all. That's amazing. Part of it was having done it for so long. But part of it, too, I came to realize later is that it was just the way that I was wired. Because there are other people, you know, Prince would get nervous, especially early on. Prince would get nervous. And he, he always did, as long as I, was, as, long as, I, as I had known him. But there are other people, like, you know, later on, I, I toured and opened for Billy Idol. Billy would get as nervous before shows anybody I've ever seen. So it's just, it's a, it's a wiring. You know, I would actually get sleepy and feel like taking a brief nap before going on stage. Just get really relaxed. And then, you know, boom, you know. So it's, it's funny. In 1980, the Dirty Mind album was released. Uh, the music and themes were pretty edgy, sexually explicit. He, Prince, was bringing some shock factor to yes. the world. He was creating the mystique, right? <laughs> the, the Prince persona that would become legendary. How did all that sit with you? Uh, at first, it was like, well, that's Prince being Prince again. As time went on, it did not sit well with me at all. I mean, I, I actually remember the moment that all of that was sort of birthed, in a sense. We were doing um, two shows at the Roxy in Hollywood, and it was like the industry, you know, dog and pony show where it was nothing but a full house of press and, and you know, music executives, that whole thing. And in the break in between shows, um, after our management and everybody kind of cleared and given us the room, Prince said, you know what? I'm going to, I've decided that we all just need to have some sort of clear, he used a different word, but persona on stage is what he was talking about. He said, I'm going to portray pure sex. That's what I'm going to do. And that kind of grew out of a conversation that we just had with one of our managers who chastised him for wearing spandex pants without wearing any underwear. (laughs) 
Dennis the Menace. That was his Dennis the Menace streak. So he decided the next, you know, we'd done one show. The next show, he's going to come out in just his underwear. And so that's how that whole thing began. But he said, I'm going to portray pure sex. The rest of you need to figure out, you know, kind of basically who you are and what you're going to portray on stage. Did it have to go along with that same theme or you could do your own thing? You could. Do, he, he let me do my own thing. For whatever reason, he always let me do my own thing. But there was always going to be an element of that. And if he decided to, usually the female members of the band, they had no choice. He was going to, he was going to sort of, uh, he was going to dress them. He was going to image them. He was going to style them. That year, I read that you had something of a religious conversion. I did. Uh, let's talk about that. Did you yeah. grow up in a very religious environment? Yeah, I, I did. I mean, I, I, I was a church kid. You know, sitting in a breadbasket doesn't make you a biscuit. So, you know what I mean? It was one of those kind of things. And, you know, my mom had us in, in church and Sunday school and vacation Bible school. Whatever school there was, she had us in it. And, you know, I can remember being like five years old, being in this, you know, basement Sunday school room at Pilgrim Baptist Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, singing Jesus Loves Me and and really feeling I can still see everything from that moment, really believing Jesus loves me. He's real and he loves me. Um, But over time, you know, we kind of went from being Baptist to being Lutheran, there was a falling out in the Baptist you know, church, and I was already like, we were going to a Baptist church, but I was going to a Lutheran school, and so we just kind of pivoted and became Lutherans, and so most of my life was spent, you know, I spent growing up Lutheran, and there just came a point, you know, I was 16 years old, I was playing in bands, I had been for a couple years, and, you know, traveling is on, on that kind of rinky-dink level that we were traveling, and I just came to my mom, and I said, you know what, Mom, I, I believe God is real. I believe Jesus is, a, is his son, but I don't see this changing anybody's life in this church that I've been in all my life. I don't see any of it evident once people leave here. But when I go to a rock show and, and people light their Bix and, and, and they yell for an encore, that moment is real. And that's what I want to go do. And in her wisdom, she said, all right, you know, you're, you're grown at age 16. You just go ahead. And so for 10 years, I became kind of that rock and roll prodigal. And a lot of it, like I said, best of times and worst of times, a lot of it, especially in the beginning, was like, this is, I I don't have words for how awesome this is. But there were always these great experiences that were fused with letdown and disappointment. It was awesome and it was janky all at the same time. And I came to a point in the middle of that Dirty Mind tour where I was kind of not happy. And I'm sitting on my couch, 1130 at night, December 22nd, 1980. And it wasn't an audible voice, but it was as loud on the inside as I could imagine a voice being. Um, Say what you will. And at that moment, I knew that, you know, it it was me and God in that room. The God that I had learned about all those years growing up. And he kind of, and he still does this with me, kind of almost in a low-key, almost a a jesting kind of way. So how's all this working out for you? Doing what you wanted to do. How's all this working out for you? And and my response, not out loud, but, you know, again, within myself was, well, I'm not real happy right now. His response was, well, you can keep doing what you're doing, or you could, you know, give your life to me and, and try that. It's up to you. 
And at that point, it wasn't like, you know, I was going to phone a friend or it, it was instantaneous. It's like, yes, please, right now, let's go. And I remember in that moment, everything about the room changed. I was sitting in my living room. I, I knew that room intimately. We owned that house for several years at that point. And it was like the room got brighter. It was like going from, you know, like an old TV to HD. Everything changed. I went back out on the road two weeks later, you know, came up and turned, getting on the airplane, looked down the aisle, and it was like, oh, I love everybody on this plane. It was, it was the most wild thing. But that was the beginning of a change that changed everything going forward. Let's talk guitars for a minute. I'm a guitar player, and I had a country record deal. And so we'd go out and we'd tour, and they would always ask, you know, who are your influences? And I would make something up because I couldn't tell them uh, Prince and anyone that played guitar for Ozzy Osbourne. But forever, I have credited Prince for the Little Red Corvette solo. And until recently, I found out that wasn't Prince at all. That was you. And that was one of my all-time favorite things he ever did. It wasn't him. It was you. <laughs> that's wild. And that's actually the one in the uh, 100 greatest guitar solos of all time. I'm, I'm, I came in at number 64 for that solo. So our inside joke was, hey, I'm number 64. <laughs> at one point, I thought about getting a tattoo on the inside of my wrist yes. that said number 64. But, but yeah, that, that was – and it was one of those where – you know, Prince would call up and say, hey, you know, I want you to come over and play on something. And, you know, we did a pass, you know, and then we did another pass. Then we did another pass. I mean, I'd heard the playback, you know, beginning to end, like maybe one time. And then after the third pass, we just comped some things. So yeah. that solo is parts of three solos that I had to relearn. You know how that goes. I had oh, to yeah. relearn it because it's like, well, you wouldn't play this phrase and that phrase back to back. But it's cool when you hear it. It's unnatural trying to play it. So yeah, that was the funny thing they did, that the magazine that did that, the Top 100 thing, later on they decided, oh, this was so cool, we're going to try to, I don't know, squeeze more out of it. And we're going to do these one-to-one -one, like shootouts. So they took my solo and did a shootout between me and Jimmy Page from Stairway to Heaven. Okay, how is that? Yeah. How on earth... <laughs> Am I going to compete with that? So I got, I got stomped. Oh, no, you got stomped. Uh, got completely stomped. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, one more guitar thing here. Yeah. You know, you uh, you told us about how you got that Gibson, mm -hmm. but then you're playing Hamer, right? Yeah. Okay, and you went on tour with Billy Idol. Yep. And Steve Stevens played Hamer. Yes. Did, did you guys, did you have a Hamer endorsement? What happened was Steve and I became really good friends. I knew it. And, and Joel Danzig and, and one of the other guys from Hamer were out on the road with us a lot. So one day, we're, I'm, after our set, I'm back side stage, you know, watching Billy and, and, uh, and company play. And Joel said, hey, you know, I, I know you guys got a break coming up in the tour. Come to, it was the suburbs of Chicago. Come to the factory, and we'll build you a guitar. And you can go through, and you can pick out everything you want, the way you want it. And so I did. Uh, and they, they, they built me a guitar. That black and white. Uh, that black and white yeah. with a big red dot in the middle. Um, I never had a true endorsement, but I still to this day have this custom hammer, one of a kind. And I love that guitar. I'll never, ever let that guitar go. Yeah, don't blame me. <laughs> We have to take our second break. When we come back, we're going to hear some more amazing stories from Des Dickerson. You're listening to History's Hook. 
Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen, meat, and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today in the studio, I'm honored to have Des Dickerson with us, one of the greatest guitarists of our time. When we went to break, Des Lake had asked you about Little Red Corvette. So in late 1982, Prince released a double album, 1999, which sold over 4 million copies. Uh, The title track became Prince's first top 10 hit in countries outside the US. So success is continuing, obviously. Um, You are... Uh, had opened for Rick James. Uh, you opened for the Rolling Stones. Uh, ma- major venues uh, you're playing at this point in time. What I'm really interested in is um, 
sort of the the musicality, the pop culture side of it. You're on Saturday Night Live in 1981, uh, and that show obviously is a bridge or a lens to to pop culture. Talk about some of these songs and how they were connected to ideas beyond pop culture. I read, for instance, that the song 1999 was a response to the Cold War and a mm-hmm. protest to against nuclear proliferation. Um, songwriting and what it means. You know, Prince, the, the, like any human being, Prince and creative people even more so, Prince had certain fixations and some of them were connected to things that were almost phobias. One of them was this fixation with sort of, you know, nuclear annihilation and war. So if you listen in a lot of his songs, there's in kind of an anti-war kind of a, a theme. But like a lot of that stuff, I mean, John Lennon was kind of the same. At the same time, it was, it's kind of naive. It's like, well, that that's a great sentiment, but exactly how are we going to accomplish that? So... You know, the, the, the 1999 thing he, he combined, as he would do so many times, he would combine sort of sexuality and fear of nuclear winter and dancing kind of in one song. You know? Mommy, why does everybody have a bomb? Exactly, exactly. It was, it was that whole thing. But, but part of the motif was always the mashup. Part of the motif was always, you know, we're going to be this, but we're also going to be that. We're going to be both and. And from the beginning, his goal was for us to not be anything that anybody else had done before or could be easily, you know, categorized or, or pigeonholed. So the, the songwriting, the look, the sound, everything on the one hand, that was sort of the object, the objective. That was the reason for being um, and, and it wasn't completely premeditated. It's just that those were the guidelines. So, um, and he was influenced by things that he would visually just kind of be inspired by, like the trench coats that we wore for a time. There was a film called Quadrophenia. Um, it, it was The Who. And there was this, this sort of gang of sorts in the film that rode um, Vespa scooters and wore these long sort of, you know, trench coat, raincoat things. And the, that look caught his attention. We all, when we were touring in, in uh, the UK, we saw Stray Cats live. And even though they were, they were Americans, we, you know, they, they went to the UK to break, so we'd never seen them. And so we came back from the UK and independently of one another, we showed up at rehearsal after being off for a few weeks and everybody was wearing their hair in a pompadour. It's like, hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> so there was the Stray Cats window. But that was just, again, inspiration and, and the the committed goal of being a new thing, even though I always say this, and I say this with, with great love and respect, he knew a good idea when he stole one, uh-huh. and he knew how to take it into the chop shop to the point where you couldn't recognize it once he brought it back out. Right. Yeah, it went from uh, stealing to inspiration. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody goes from imitation to innovation. Hopefully you make that jump, but some go from innovation to to imagination. Sure. And so ultimately, there are certain songs where he made it to imagination, in my opinion. But yeah. a lot of it was really skillful innovation. And what you were doing together, I mean, it's transformative, right? Yeah. It's becoming legendary. I mean, it's a, it's a part of American music now. You know, it, it's, it just transforms music, what you were doing at that point in time. You're at the top of your game. Mm-hmm. And right after the 1999 tour, you leave the band. Yep. In 1983. 
Yeah. Why? You know, the, 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 the reality is it doesn't matter how much money, doesn't matter how famous, doesn't matter, the numbers don't matter. You can sell, you can sell a million more records. You, can, it, it, you come to the point where if you are not at peace, first with yourself and then with those around you, that if you're, if you're an authentic person, you realize that it's more important for you to, to move on. Your time is done. And for me, it, it was a combination of kind of the return to, you know, the, the spiritual roots of, of my life and that kind of galvanizing even more so my priorities. There was a night where we were doing a show and, you know, I, every night you kind of look out and you see, you know, you survey the audience. And there was a, a guy with his daughter just a few rows back and um, looked to me like she was probably eight or nine years old. And I had this clear thought that just kind of came out of nowhere. I would not want my nine-year-old daughter to hear the things that we're singing about up here. I didn't have kids at the time. But that was the thing that and it, it stopped me in my tracks. And so I, I, be, I became more and more sort of aware of the conflict, kind of the push me, pull you that was going on on the inside. We would, you know, join in a circle and join hands and, and pray every night. And I got to the point of, who exactly are we praying to? Can somebody explain this to me? Because help us to go out there and keep everybody safe. And I'm filling in, in between the blanks thinking, help us to go out here and be lewd and vulgar and be safe as we do it. And I'm like, I, I, this isn't what I learned growing up. So that combined with the fact that it's just the nature of people and, and bands. It's like a marriage, but it's like, you know, it's a lot of people in the marriage. And I was at the point where I was, I was not, I was not fun to be around. I wouldn't have wanted to be around me at that point in time. And so I just knew it was time at the point where I I'd started to go after our keyboard player with a boom stand. And I think I probably would have followed through had a couple of our crew guys not stopped me. I realized, no, I, I got to get out. You never really left music. Uh, you started your own band, The Modern Airs, uh, and continued a relationship with Prince yeah. after leaving the band. Describe. You know, he and I continued to, to collaborate. You know, one of the things that we began to do um, during my time in the band was some of these sort of spin, I hate to call them spin-off groups, but, you know, we had, like, the time in Vanity Six, and there were acts that we developed. So we were, we were kind of developing our own opening acts kind of thing. And I would co-write, write and co-write songs for, for some of those groups. And he would, he would tend to look to me lyrically. He would, he would call, and it was always the same thing. You answer the phone, there's a little bit of a delay. Des, Prince, I got a title. I want you to write me some lyrics. And that would be it. He'd, he'd give me the title. Um, the, the Time, for example, their first hit was a song called Cool. Well, he just called me with just that word. And so I wrote some lyrics, called him back about 20 minutes later. Here you go. So we continued. He continued to, true to his word, help in terms of taking what was first the Modern Airs and then the Des Dickerson band. It, it changed within a few months um, and did what he could do for us. And, and we continued to be friends literally right up to the end. We didn't, you know, talk every day on the phone because he's not that kind of guy. But I spoke to him like three weeks before he passed away. So. I don't want to end this interview without getting back to the religious angle. You're living a life that's very purposeful, is one of my takeaways from this incredible conversation with you. You started a church, uh, mm -hmm. first in Nashville, now in Columbia, Tennessee. Tell me about We Are Here. 
We are here, you know, I, I mentioned kind of in passing with respect to Prince, this sort of both and kind of ethos. Um, and that, that for me has been kind of a life theme, you know, the guitar player performer, who's also this, who's also this. And it's something that I, I've come to understand that it, it's God's idea. You know, you, you find out what you are and then do what you are. So I've actually been ordained since 1988, Continued to be involved in the music business throughout all that time. Began to wear other hats that were also synergistically related. I'm an adjunct professor and actually teach performance, of, of all things. So the church was just an outgrowth of all that. It was kind of a, as I believe it should be in everyone that undertakes this sort of, you know, Balaam's donkey role of being the mouthpiece. I mean, I think it should always be something that kind of authentically grows out of what you know, God has done and said and achieved in you. And now you're in the process of sharing that with other people. For us, the, the point of it is not to build a big church, but to build big people. It's about having big influence. And it's something that I've seen on the musical side. I've seen how you can, you can kind of recognize and identify the big in the little. You might be rehearsing in a, in a basement, but that doesn't mean that you won't be on stage at the L.A. Coliseum one day if you keep doing what you are. And so we are here. It's kind of built around that ethos. We got three pillars. One, that uh, you are God's idea, not the other way around. The second one is that the, the truth is not an opinion or an idea. The truth is a person named Jesus. And the third is, yes, God loves you, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. You're not done yet. And that's, that's kind of, the, that's the church. But at the same time, that spills over into the, the business things that I'm involved in and, you know, doing talk radio. I, I find myself slipping back and forth between things that might be political or ideological or might be considered to be, but then I'm saying something that I just shared in a sermon this Sunday before, because it's both and. Where does We Are Here meet? We actually, we, we are being hosted by Westminster Presbyterian Church over on Trotwood um, until we grow to the point of, of uh, having our own building. So they have a lovely old chapel in the building up the, the hall from the main sanctuary. And we meet in the chapel, church in the chapel, as we call it. What time? 9 a.m. Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, 9 a.m. Mr. Daz Dickerson, thank you for sharing your story with us, and thank you for the wonderful music that you brought to the world. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We end the show with a quote from Prince that sums up the career of many musicians. Sometimes it takes years for a person to become an overnight success. I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Taft Ayers, our production engineer, Ann Klein, and my co-host, Lake Stolkup. And most of all, you, our listeners. You can now hear all of our History's Hook episodes online at frontporchradiotn.com and wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. 
We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. This is Bob Kessling with Pat Ryan. It's a beautiful day for digging. The backhoe operator has the engine running and is moving into position. He's heading for the ground. He's in there. Wait, there's a flag on the play. Let's get out of the field for the call from our official. Illegal procedure on the digging team. Oh, that penalty could cause a costly accident. That's right, Bob. He needs to call before he digs. There's underground utility lines that could be hiding just below the surface. Water, sewer, electrical, communication lines, and even natural gas. Avoid a penalty by first calling 811 to have any underground public utility lines located and marked with flags or paint. It's free, it's easy, and it's the law. For more tips, visit pipesafety.org. This message brought to you by the Tennessee Association of Broadcasters and the Tennessee Gas Association, funded in part by a grant from the Underground Utility Damage Enforcement Board. Need a little extra cash for the holidays? From now until Christmas, Pillar Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, and Electrical is giving you a $500 Visa gift card when you buy select new HVAC systems or receive a $250 gift card with a new tankless water heater. And upgrade now with monthly payments as low as $79. Visit happyhiller.com. Happy you'll be or the service is free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Hey, this is Jonathan Castile, a.k.a. John Boy, with John Boy's Handyman Service. One call and we'll handle it all. Truly means we'll handle it all. From pressure washing your house to doing remodeling, we're licensed, insured, and bonded. So rest assured, John Boy will handle it all. You can contact me at 931-242-7620 or my email, castilejonathan10 at gmail.com. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Hello, my name is Zach Maddox. I'm a proud third-generation owner-operator of Columbia Paint and Wall Cover, founded by my grandfather, Ralph Maddox, in 1946. Now I'm honored to continue the legacy as owner-operator today. We offer a variety of paint and wall covering products, but our passion is customer service. We can offer many personalized services and can come out to your house or business if needed. Visit us at our store, downtown Columbia, at 1114 Carmack Boulevard, or online at paintcolumbia.com. Tis the season for all of my favorite treats. Now, where are Grandma's homemade holiday cookies? 
hold them. Where are Grandma's cookies? Easy, Joe. Grandma brought something even sweeter this season. <gasps> Your triple fudge brownies? No, Joey. Holiday instant games from the Tennessee Lottery. Made from scratch holiday wins? Grandma, you're a genius. Give the gift of holiday instant games topped with sweet cash prizes. Only from the Tennessee Lottery. Oh, what game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Oh, oh, uh, open that one. It's for me. Holiday instant games from the Tennessee Lottery. Best gift ever! Wait, these tickets are already scratched. Yeah, it was me. I was just so excited. But look, we won! Tis the season for epic cash prizes. This year, give the most winning gift of all. Holiday instant games from the Tennessee Lottery. Oh, what game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee.